0: That for a slice of fried gold? Are oh, You think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back.
1: Just a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains.
2: Take <laughs> your sticky paws oh,
1: off of me, you damn
2: dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's, alive, it's, alive, it's alive. I guess a of the one of me.
0: Well, hello, welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast where we explore the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. Ergo, I am your co-host, Gary Horn. You should have gone all in and just done the whole. I Orson thought about Wells it, but you know what? He does. You know what stopped me was uh, that I feel like this is the Johnny has the keys for the end of this episode, <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't want to steal all. I didn't
3: want to step on Todd's toes. I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop, and I'm the third guy, writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. The third guy, the third man. I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome here to. Episode uh, three. Right. Episode three of our Wachowski series Four, if you count a bonus episode, which we did uh, came out last week. If you're subscribing, we did. We, we kind of teased it last episode. Uh, we didn't promise anything because we weren't sure when we were recording it, but we managed <laughs> to get it out and, and get it edited and up on the Internet. And we did a little bonus episode on the Animatrix. So I think that's a pretty integral part of the discussion of this series. Oh, for um, sure. You know, I'm glad it,
0: we did it. I think it, it absolutely fits in. And is yeah. it's part of this whole thing.
3: Oh, yeah. So, but now we're moving on to the official sequels to The Matrix. And as we discussed on our last full episode, The Matrix was a major critical and commercial hit. It was also a major cultural milestone. It won four Academy Awards. Uh, it introduced pop culture symbols like the red pill and the blue pill. And as we uh, pretty heavily discussed, um, it was very influential to action filmmaking as a whole. Uh, And the film, as a result, was added to the National Film Registry for Preservation in 2012. And while it was pretty clear at the time that it was a very important film, for the folks over at Warner Brothers, it also meant huge profits. It brought in $170 million on a $60 million investment, uh, and that was just uh, domestically, I believe. So naturally, of course, they wanted a sequel. And Lana and Lily Wachowski had a lot more story to tell. Uh, as you might recall, if you listen to that episode, the original Matrix screenplay was conceived as a trilogy that they were then asked to pare down to a single film. But with the film's success, they were finally given a chance to finish their story with not one, but two sequels to The Matrix, filmed simultaneously, and in an almost unprecedented move, released about six months apart. And those sequels, of course, are the subject of today's show. So let's talk about The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions.
2: I believe it is our fate to be here.
1: It is our destiny. I believe this night holds for each and every one of us the very meaning of our lives
2: this is a war and we are soldiers what if tomorrow the war could be over isn't that worth fighting for isn't that worth dying for
1: Yeah. As I was looking stuff up, stuff up and I saw that they were released uh, that close together. I, I had completely forgotten about that. And I was like, wow. And these, these, they, the scale is just as big, if not bigger than the first one. And oh yeah, I'd it's a yeah, bigger mind boggling that they were able to do all this in such a compressed amount of time.
3: Yeah. I mean, shooting it that way, does help with that because you're building sets simultaneously things like that you're able to do second unit work while you're shooting other stuff and basically treating it like one giant production and i I said in that intro that the release strategy was almost unprecedented uh, because while it was unusual it wasn't the first time that two sequels were released in quick succession like that um, actually, over a decade earlier, Universal had done a similar thing with the Back to the Future sequels, Back to the Future oh, 2 yeah. and 3. Uh, they released Part 2 in November of 89 and Part 3 six months later in May of 1990. Uh, but the production of those was pretty different than the production of the Matrix sequels because the Back to the Future sequels were filmed back to back. Uh, I mean, they you've seen them. They feature... Uh, vastly different settings one set in the future and one set in the old west but the matrix reloaded and the matrix revolutions were filmed simultaneously uh, as if it was one giant you know three-hour movie
0: Mm. yeah i you know looking up some of this stuff i saw lana and lily were approached to. i just thought this was interesting direct batman begins during this time and uh, huh, wow. yeah, that was the discussion with them, and uh, but of course had to turn it down due to the Matrix sequels. And uh, I just I don't know. I found that to be a fun fact for you, um, yeah. And that they originally planned, like supposedly, that this would they were going to release these like several weeks apart, not months. And yeah, I
3: think that would have been a you got to give the movie time to make a little bit of money and for people to maybe
0: revisit it and things like that. I, I think that would yeah. Been a, maybe like that's what they decided call. on, but yeah. yeah, just thought
1: that was interesting. Makes me wonder what a Wachowski-led Batman movie would look like.
3: Probably pretty cool. Yeah, but I was going to say. Th- it would at least look awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very different than what we got with Nolan, I I would have to say. Probably. So while while they were in Japan promoting The Matrix, the Wachowskis met with several Japanese anime directors who'd inspired them. And this is a little bit of a recap for those who haven't listened to our Animatrix episode, but they were meeting folks like Cowboy Bebop director Shinshiro Watanabe, Ninja Scroll director uh, Toshiaki Kawajiri, uh, who they would later collaborate with on the Animatrix. Uh, but while on the plane ride back from Japan after, after this promotion, the siblings started to map out these ideas for how to follow up the Matrix in a sort of cross-platform experience that had never really been done before. Uh, They were envisioning not only a sequel, but a series of animated stories and a video game, all of which would be considered part of the overall Matrix storyline.
0: To hear Joel Silver discuss it, uh, Lana was really the one like hammering down on this thing with a yellow notepad, he said on the plane. And it makes me wonder if that's like why Lana appears to be the most invested in this thing overall and that Lily's not coming back for it uh, in the fourth one.
3: It may be, and Lana also seems to be just a little more outspoken and willing to put herself out there, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. That just is kind of the the gist that I get. I mean, she's the one who, we'll we'll get into this in later episodes, but she's the one that kind of took over the reins of Sense8 when Lily is only involved in the first season of that. Uh, And now, as Gary mentioned, is not coming back for the fourth film. But yeah, it, it almost feels like this is a little bit more lana's project but they both contribute a
0: lot to it what would be think- easier to know about this is anything if you could talk to them but i was uh, reading up on this and the wachowskis had a contract like when when they figured everything out for reloaded and revolutions part of that contract was a stipulation they don't have to do any more media interviews yeah, they don't like doing it. <laughs>
3: so uh, now, now in it. recent years, Lana has has done a lot more interviews,
1: but generally, they're very, very private people. Being involved in any sort of creative project, the old saying holds true: two brains are better than one. You know, it helps to have an extra set of hands. Like, it's it's probably great that they worked together, but yeah, they're you know, uh, one probably ended up spearheading one side of one thing, and maybe you know from time to time the you know you get the other side of the coin where the other one takes
2: yeah leader. i feel like what, in or, a lot of
1: these yeah. um
3: collaborative uh relationships like this whether it be siblings or just co-directors there you would think that there'd be one person who is a little more dominant in, in the uh like kind of running everything mm. but to hear cast members and crew members talk about their directing style it, it, people talk about them as if they're of the same mind like finishing other each other's sentences yeah you know like they they can almost there's almost like a telepathic link between them so they talk as if it it almost is like working with one director who just happens to be able to be in two places at once Uh,
0: and and i'm with you todd on like a lot of that because i feel like a lot of the best movies we've talked about have been these situations where like when it really clicks where there's like a director who has like a vision. But sometimes there just needs to be like the other person. I, I feel this way in a lot of creative uh, endeavors. It's somebody to hold you accountable and to tell yeah, you no Somebody you need to be, sure. to be told no. Yeah, and be and like, it, hey, it, hey, this doesn't, this makes sense and this doesn't. And this like, you know, like, hey, rethink this part. Like, right. just, well, Let even me going remind you that you did this earlier. And right. Even going
1: back it. to our very first series, you know, Romero and Savini, you know, I don't know how closely that relationship was. And it's been a while since I've listened to the episodes, But- you know, it, it may, it may not just be another director. It could be the cinematographer or the production designer, Oh yeah, whoever it is, but you know, that person to sort of, all right, you ride shotgun, like <laughs> I'll take the reins, but you're riding shotgun. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, as that we discussed in
3: our matrix episode, like film is a very much a collaborative medium. Oh, uh, yeah. the, the director is at the top of the pyramid, but you know, they, they, come up with a concept they give it to the production designer the production designer has to work with the the costumer and the special effects guy and then they talk to the cinematographer like everybody it's it's a it's a pyramid uh going down but at the top is the director but they're all integral pieces of the pyramid
2: You
0: want to talk about a pyramid though the matrix good god
2: yeah (laughs) we'll we'll get into it let's
0: this is a massive pyramid yeah. yeah yeah it absolutely is so back
3: back to the development on this so the Animatrix was created as a sort of setup to the first Matrix sequel, with a especially with the short film Final Flight of the Osiris, serve serving as what producer Joel Silver called the Matrix 1.5. Uh, in addition to the Animatrix, though, the Wachowskis also wrote a video game called Enter the Matrix, which would tie in directly to Final Flight of the Osiris. Uh, yeah. So, in Enter the Matrix, do you guys remember the game? Did you ever play I, it? Yeah,
1: I played it. I, I played, played it, it too. All uh, way through. Yeah,
3: yeah, uh, really fun. So in a, so in that game which takes place at roughly the same time as the matrix reloaded the player could play as either niobe which is jada pinkett smith's character or ghost which is anthony wong's character who you barely see in the movie but is a a major role in the game so in the plot of the game and ghost receive the package that's dropped off in the mailbox by jew in the final flight of the osiris uh, the two escape with the package, which is a message that the machines are approaching Zion with an army of sentinels, uh, something that, of course, will very much factor into the plots of the films. So no other video game that I'm aware of has ever been as integral to an overall story as Enter the Matrix was intended to be. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, even... So You know, like Star Wars games, Knights of the Old Republic, things like that. They're very much their own standalone stories. And yes, they might technically be considered canon. Well, now, if if a Star Wars game were to come out, it would be probably considered canon. But... It's not directly tied into the events of the movies necessarily, you know?
0: Well, well, I would be remiss if I didn't just take a second to, you can see my shirt here uh, that I'm wearing. Well, the listeners can't, but I'm wearing a Vin Diesel shirt. And so I just would like to point out in 2004 on Xbox, a game came out called The Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay. Yeah. And it is literally a prequel to Pitch Black. Yeah.
3: And... And but it's probably, I mean,
0: it's probably just because this movie did this. I was about to say,
3: because that was a year later. So I, I have to imagine that they, they saw what uh, Warner Brothers was doing with The Matrix and decided they would try the same thing. Uh, I just, I just
0: and- love Vid Diesel and I love that game. And it's like shows how he gets his eyes and everything, yeah. like the surgery he goes through in prison and all of that stuff.
3: So for Enter the Matrix, they shot over an hour of footage uh, in thirty five mm with Yun Wo Ping returning to choreograph the fights, and they had the actors, you know, with motion uh, con- or uh, with motion capture sensors all over them doing the fights and things like that. So it was treated like a movie shoot, and it's being shot at the same time as the movies. Uh, the game also features the first appearance of Mary Alice as the Oracle, uh, Gloria, Fo- Gloria Foster had died due to complications from diabetes early on in the production of the sequels but she had already filmed her scenes for the matrix reloaded and the game actually includes a scene that specifically addresses her change in appearance uh, which is due to an attack on her by the merovingian and she she addresses it a little bit in the movie but the, the game explicitly addresses it mm. uh so the game was released in may of 2003 just as the matrix reloaded was set to hit theaters and it received mixed reviews but sold over five million copies it was a very big success
1: it, yeah and it's dope it was, i the all like i've got one of the blu-rays i'm sure you guys may have seen it too all the cut scenes that are there on the blu-ray so you yeah. can actually work your way through all those cut scenes in addition to watching the movie and it's yeah it's pretty cool
0: yeah, I um I remember the game having like moments in it where like uh, uh like we're uh, in the freeway chase or something like in the movie there were like hexadecimal codes on the street signs and stuff that you could use in the game as like cheat codes or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So it was like really uh, a companion piece. And uh Monica Bellucci is also there as uh Persephone and uh, does the the kiss scene with like Jada Pinkett Smith too. Like she, she just like kissing. Dang. and You <laughs> know what? Yeah. I do it. <laughs> Jennifer, let me just show this girl what it's all about. <laughs> Monica Bellucci. Let me just let her find out. <laughs> it's all fake. Don't worry. I just want to make out with Monica Bellucci for a second. <laughs> she just
1: wants to, she just wants to put her lips up to Gary's horn.
0: I don't know what else we'll ever get into this too, but, uh, I do want to mention, <laughs> uh during the filming of this i'm sure you guys saw this but the wachowskis and uh uh owen patterson i think was the guy that like helped them out but they you know they designed the specific phone that these guys are using in the game and yeah, yeah. in the movies and a little like nokia that. yeah and uh yeah, owen all,
3: patterson's the production designer
0: you know they wanted to create like an own their own unique design and everybody they went to it like, told them they couldn't get it made samsung actually is who ended up making the ah. phone yeah, it was Samsung um, everybody Hence else a giant said, Samsung mural in the train station on the right floor. right <laughs> everybody else said it was te- technically too difficult if you could imagine to have that green screen where you could type numbers uh, that but this was special <laughs> the, the, the the lid would slide up I think it's the slide up part that was yeah. probably a little more technically difficult yeah well also this phone when they sold it was going to come with images from the matrix so. did it ever come out? yeah, yeah, they they sold I mean they made like 10,000 of these cell phones or something like that, that they sold.
2: Um,
0: yeah, it was uh I don't know, it sold out like right away apparently. So you know that's all they did. but uh they also did like a Samsung 40 inch LCD TV, like the flat panel TV, which is still like, three times thicker than any tv we have now which is wild <laughs> <laughs> uh, they did one other phone that was like called the matrix phone and they did like uh it had a rotating camera phone so like it flipped up but instead of like the normal like flip phone that has the camera on the top you could turn the flipped up part around so you can film yourself like for a selfie or <laughs> whatever Innovative. My it ass. was uh, <laughs> I don't know it's just so <laughs> stupid I was like watching through all these commercials and stuff because during the filming of this like the Wachowski's actually directed commercials for this shit and they did wire work and stuff like that they were like Carrion Moss's stunt double Uh, to do some of the stuff and like they were just making commercials for these fucking samsung phones that nowadays people will look back on and be like what the fuck really (laughs) well
3: technically the the in the matrix they are living in a simulation of the late 20th century they explicitly say that so you know uh, so they are living in 1999 and in the inside of the simulation
0: yeah they make it pretty clear that the machines use iphones (laughs) (laughs) so the the matrix sequels
3: were as i mentioned filmed simultaneously as a single massive production and joel silver said that when the scripts came in it was pretty clear that it was one movie or one script cut in half so that's how they treated the production uh because remember that this was always designed as a series with multiple pieces the the wachowskis had originally envisioned it as a trilogy so there was a lot for them a lot of story for them to tell So when they signed on, uh, they got the script out there and they started obviously contacting the cast and everyone signed on. Everyone in the original cast signed on without question. Uh, You've got Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Lawrence Fishburne. They they all loved working with the Wachowskis on the first film, all of them kind of referring to it as one of the high points of their career. So when talks of a sequel came about, it didn't really take any convincing to get any of them on board.
0: Most of them just, like, sign on without even reading a script. This is for, true for them and, like, yeah. like later at, or the newer actors, too. And, uh, I, in fact, I don't even think I mentioned it on the first Matrix, but I remember, like, hearing Bill Pope and stuff talk about, you know, the hardest part about working on the Matrix was you don't know that you're ever going to reach this level again. Like, you've yeah. peaked. Mm-hmm. Like, are you ever going to work on anything that's, like, this fantastical yeah. to, like, deal with?
3: And everything on the sequel was going to be bigger. I mean, the budget was bigger, the fight scenes were bigger, the training was longer, uh, and and there were also a lot of new characters that had to be introduced. This is a much much bigger cast of characters than in the previous film. Well, so you're I'm talking gonna...
0: about you're talking about the the training. I mean, it was like eight months longer this time. I yeah. feel like uh and and they also had trouble fucking carrying moss like broke her leg in the middle of yeah, training immediately. <laughs> like immediately two weeks in at least uh <laughs> keanu could kick this time around he sure could he is he is a maniac like you talked about in the first episode That's i mean crazy, he, man. i saw a quote with him on one of the specials that he was just like this one was twice as long and three times as hard which is excellent <laughs> I love him in the behind the scenes interviews
3: on this because he'll be sitting in, back in his chair in like his blazer and jeans, you know, the tip of the Keanu uh uniform. Yeah, I was gonna say standard <laughs> and, issue Keanu, and he'll just be doing these moves while he's yeah, he'll be trying to mime, he'll be trying to mime <laughs> the fight
2: scenes, but still sitting, he won't get us still sitting. <laughs>
3: Uh, it's really great so talk about the new cast I, I don't have a lot of really i don't have a lot of big stories about how these people got involved but listen to this cast of these are just a few of the new characters you've got jada pinkett smith as niobe uh who we, we mentioned she had tried out for trinity on the first film she's playing niobe here the uh the captain of one of the ships whose name i do not recall <laughs> you got harold perrineau as link who uh, i'm a big fan of him
0: neo where's my boy <laughs>
3: Oh, you're trying to do the Walt thing? Yeah, that's That's
0: the Walt thing. Okay. Uh,
3: (laughs) uh, you got Randall Duke Kim as the Keymaker, Monica Bellucci as uh, Persephone, Lambert Wilson as the Merovingian, Neil and Adrian Raymond as the twins. They're actually twins. Uh, (laughs) uh, Colin Chow as uh, Seraph, Harry Lennox as Commander Locke. I've always been a big fan of Harry Lennox. I don't know why. He's just one of those character actors who always kind of, jumps out at me and mm-hmm. then a uh, helmet backitis as the architect oh helmets and he had actually tried out for something else like one of the council members i think is who he had tried out as he didn't get that job but they called him back to to play the architect and he literally did his orson welles impression during it so that's oh he like, i was joking earlier when for. i said he sounded like orson welles like that was intentional <laughs> Uh, but that's not even all of them that's just all the kind of major ones that i'm going to list here Um, i mean
0: you're talking about in the credits of this film there were are like 1,943 names so it's uh crazy yeah it's insane insane. uh i I just if we could take a second to step back and just think about monica bellucci again just for a (laughs) second i think about monica bellucci (laughs) regularly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Lily and cast Monica Bellucci as uh Persephone after seeing her performance in uh Melina Yeah. that's the first
3: thing I, I knew her from.
0: Yeah. Uh you know, she, she was in uh Dracula, right? Yeah, she's one of Dracula's brides and
1: yeah. Dracula. Yeah, but, I, uh, but with she, Keanu, she, I don't think
0: she but I don't think she has any lines in that
1: hardly, does she? Mm, yeah, I don't think so. Just I don't a few, I don't uh, yeah. maybe one or two word things, nothing stand nothing that stands out. Yeah. My, uh, she's
0: the perfect mob boss wife because she's just she, untouchable and hot. Like she she's like inspector with like Jay's Bond, where she's like uh the the widow of one of the mob bosses, too, or something. If I yeah, that right. was
3: inspect and in, in, yeah, inspector, uh, which I watched like last week and uh made her the oldest Bond girl in the history of the franchise. But let me tell you, she has aged
0: very well. Yeah, she is she is <laughs> fine. Uh she, so she she, also, is-
3: she was Mary Magdalene and in, in the passion and one of the earliest yeah. things that I knew her from was a, a movie from the early 2000s, actually, that it was before the Matrix, uh, before the Matrix reloaded, rather, uh, called Irreversible. Have you seen it by
0: Gaspar? No, I haven't seen that. You've talked about it. it's that
3: Dude, great movie um,
2: where
0: they work backwards.
3: Yeah, I it's it's a tough watch, but I it is incredible. It's an incredible film. Isn't you she said, in
1: but, uh, isn't she in shoot 'em up? She is, man
0: is she i haven't seen that yeah in years. she I is didn't really like it okay hasn't done like a lot i mean it feels like she's doing like a lot of italian stuff now but like yeah. she um god bless it monica Bellucci. you were so perfectly put together and i <laughs> appreciate you as a person as a human being i appreciate you just <laughs> i'm grateful that you exist um all right. So that was the horny section of the <laughs> podcast. I will say this uh, we should give some love to, to Gina Torres, who plays Cass, uh, who's yeah. the widow of Dozer. Of Gina
3: Torres. She's in a lot of Joss Whedon stuff. Mm, yeah. um, was, a lot she was of, married um... to
0: Lawrence Fishburne at the time of this. So I think oh, that's really? what happened there. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gina Torres is another one of those actors
3: who I always like. She's in a lot of stuff, mostly as like a small role or a, or a guest role in a TV show, but she's one of those ladies just
2: magnetic. I like, just
3: always liked watching her. She was on, yeah. uh, she was on alias for a long time. Uh, she's in firefly. Like she, you know, she's, she's done a lot of really good stuff. Uh, and she's just I, one of those that when I see her pop up in something, I'm always excited about it.
0: The other stuff I saw that, that was just interesting to me is apparently they did offer Sean Connery, uh, the architect, and uh (laughs) he turned it down because he didn't understand the concept of the script all (laughs) right go ahead and hit
1: go ahead and hit us with a couple lines gary
0: (laughs) just i'm just saying uh that was actually that was some stuff i found from the league of extraordinary gentlemen dvd because that's the movie he picked instead excellent choice (laughs) sean and then retired (laughs) (laughs) From <laughs> the movie that ended your career <laughs>
2: yeah, he was a movie that York ended York. your
0: five decade long career <laughs> uh, it fucking blows to think about that but uh <laughs> and uh i guess uh, i guess worth mentioning because this could lead us into something special is uh one of the other uh things was uh michelle yo who is uh in star trek discovery and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of stuff we like she was offered the part of the seraph after uh, Jet Lee turned it down, we'll talk about that, but yeah. uh, due to scheduling conflict, she had to turn it down, so then it went on. I guess
3: on. Gary's been reading my
0: notes, because that's coming up. Oh, Michelle Yeoh? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I missed that part. <laughs> well, I knew yeah. you were going to talk about Jet Lee and I didn't want to step on you there, but I, I, I did. I guess I missed the Michelle Yeoh part. <laughs> it's, it's literally like two paragraphs from where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Whoops.
1: <laughs> you are here because Zion is about to be destroyed. No, that's that's not a good Sean Connery. I mean, that was not.
3: I mean, mean it's not terrible. It.
0: I've heard I've heard better, but I've heard worse.
1: Yeah, it's been a while.
0: I've been impressing so t- my wife lately with my Mark Wahlberg. Oh, so nice. It's <laughs> just like, um, I just really hope I can save everybody. I don't want to disappoint anyone. Like, if maybe if we can just save, you know, Morpheus. I don't. Even, I don't know why we don't just like, you know, I gotta save Trinity. I can't just leave her. You know, like, I really love her. I hope you understand, guys. I got to go down there.
2: <laughs> all right. So
3: with with all of this, with this cast and this enormous crew, Gary mentioned there's almost 2,000 people in the credits, I think. Surely, Todd, I'm almost afraid to ask, but surely some of these folks were
0: involved
3: in well. Star Trek.
0: Well, This is why it makes sense to Mitch <laughs> and Michelle yo now because she is in Star trek she's not in the, she's not in, she's this not movie. in the movie, <laughs> but I thought it would be a nice segue into the segment
1: well the segment we are talking about as we do every uh I guess now it's reoccurring so every episode where you ask who am I trekking with in oh, Matrix- is that what we're, it? Yep,
0: is that what we're that's, calling it yeah I just went ahead Didn't and tell gave anybody the final. that's just yep. that is what it is
2: now. <laughs> who am I trekking
1: with? <laughs> In Matrix Reloaded, we've got, uh, well, let, I'll just say we already got Kevin Michael Richardson and he returns in Matrix Revolutions as uh, the deus ex machina voice. The baby and the giant, the giant robot baby. Yeah. The giant robot <laughs> baby. Yeah. Um, and then in uh, Reloaded, we've got Mr. Matt McComb as Agent, Agent Thompson he was in one episode of Star Trek The Next Generations called Where Silence Has Leased. That's season two, episode two from 1988. He was an uncredited stunt double. And then we've got Mr. Anthony Zerby. Zerb? Zerby? I don't know. As Counselor Hammond. And he was in Star Trek Insurrection in 1998, directed by Jonathan Frakes as the character. Who's, sh- who's Jonathan Frakes? uh little known actor director it's not important
2: <laughs> not important but that's to star it. Trek other
1: than that other like kevin michael richardson who we've already mentioned he's got a whole bunch of star trek credits we've mentioned him at least twice now um but yeah other than those two out of all the cast of both movies that's, <laughs> that's it, it? <laughs> really that's it. yeah <laughs> i was what like crew did you find any crew i mean i know you i don't normally look up crew but i didn't go through the crew because I was about to say, uh hey, you're you be a...
0: full of shit some of this crews has been on star <laughs> trek
1: <laughs> probably
0: yeah
1: <laughs> i did that's crazy lee. i saw I... lee winnell lee winnell is in uh one of these as a smaller yeah. character but i was yeah. like yeah i, I did see I that too
3: somebody in zion i mean this was yeah. filmed in australia he's australian this is probably pretty early on this is pre-saw um mm-hmm but i couldn't place him in the movie uh but he's not in star trek anyway no he's
1: not in Star. (laughs) i was just you know interesting people in the cast right uh, he was just pointing out that
0: lee one l has always been up for an orgy whenever there was going down especially a thousand person orgy he's like
1: oh yeah i'll show up it's church gary if you if you consider it church then it's not weird
0: oh yeah
1: makes
3: sense so so one of the new roles, the role of Z, which is, she's the wife of Harold Perrineau's character, uh, Link's wife, that she was originally played by singer and actress Aaliyah, who tragically oh, died man. in a plane crash on August 25th, 2001. this was before filming was complete, uh, which actually required her scenes to be reshot.
0: And Nona Gay, who is actually the daughter of Marvin Gay, took over her role. Huh. I saw some of the names that were like on that list were like Eva Mendez, and uh brandy norwood uh i don't know her tatiana ali oh wow you know if you want to get some more fresh prints people to like brandy norwood is brandy oh is it brandy the singer brandy oh well that (laughs) makes star of i still know what you did last summer yeah (gasps) the boy is mine um yeah, they were all possible. That is one of our songs, yes. <laughs> Yeah, no,
1: I know. It's just weird hearing Gary be like, the boy is mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, just completely out of context. It's
1: a weird yeah. statement. <laughs> it's not out of context. Let's, you were just talking just, about Brandy. It's her song. Hey, this is all audio. It's her, audio. And, Monica. let's, it's let's her just, and Monica's song. Gary. Let's just go ahead and isolate Gary's audio of the boy is mine and just... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever.
3: So for the role of Serif, which is the program that protects the Oracle, the Wachowskis uh, did originally want the character to be a woman. They offered it to Michelle Yeoh. She wasn't able to do do it due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, And then after switching the character's gender, the Wachowski's first choice was Jet Li. Uh, But Jet Li turned down the role as well. And it wasn't until 2018 that Jet Li, he was doing an interview with a, a, a Chinese publication that he actually revealed why he had turned down a role in The Matrix. And it was because the filmmakers were going to digitally record his martial arts moves, presumably for Enter the Matrix and for digital, um, you know, stuntmen things like that, like things that you you would need to CGI him in. And according to Lee, that made his signature his signature martial arts moves their intellectual property. Once they recorded him doing them with the motion capture sensors on, then they now owned those that footage. That that uh, that information, and he was not willing to let that happen. He's like, I've trained Such my entire. Bullshit. He's like, I've trained my entire life to to do this. To I, I've trained my whole life to be able to do this stuff, and I'm not going to just let somebody else be able to use it, however they want to use it, without my
1: involvement. What do we got a side, here? A sidekick huh? is we isn't got a sidekick isn't your trademark. We got a little hater here. Sidekick hater is not range? a trademark of Jet lee Li. Like. You were taught that move by somebody else, asshole. Well, like, I, I don't know why you're so that you angry about own. this,
3: Todd. But sorry, um, sorry. <laughs> but so there angry. are there are sorry. martial artists that have a very a very distinct signature style. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can, you could mm. watch a Bruce Lee performance and just see the moves and know that it's Bruce Lee. It's yeah. very apparent. And I think Jet Li is actually one of those martial artists who he's got a very distinct signature style. Yes, it's based on you know, centuries old tradition, but a a gently fight scene is still very much a gently fight scene. Uh, You know, Tony Jaws the same way. There's a lot of fighters who have their own distinct
0: style. So I kind of see where he's coming from. Yeah, I I I mean, I I don't think anybody's thinking of it that much. They would even do anything with it, but I do, I do believe that he probably is that protective of his martial arts. So (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's spent Uh
3: since he was a child. Yeah. You know, training to do this stuff and i i honestly don't blame them if somehow somebody's going to be able to use
1: that in a project that you're not actually involved with i guess i just, i mean i can i can see like a for, form of movement but like a sidekick is a sidekick is a sidekick sorry well
3: i i, I don't think
1: they're there i don't think he's probably referring to like a
3: generic sidekick i mean they're recording his exact moves his exact performance yeah he doesn't want somebody else to own that that would be hard at it (laughs) yeah that would be
1: an interesting deep dive of you know the legalities behind stuff like that i don't know well i mean
3: if it's in his contract then we're here
0: years later and you know i can now confirm through investigative reporting the wachowskis were attempting to clone jet lee it's uh they're they're
3: they're actually constructing their own matrix yeah so Uh, believe
0: it or not you know, weirdly enough, gently <laughs> ahead of the curve on this one.
3: So most of the creative team behind the first Matrix movie was returning for this one, including conceptual artist uh, Jeff Darrow and Steve Croce, uh, production designer Owen Patterson, cinematographer Bill Pope, costume designer Kim Barrow, editor Zach Steinberg, effects supervisor John Gaeta, and composer Don Davis. They're all back. Everybody's back.
0: Justin, uh, except, Justin, I did want to mention... Uh, I didn't get this in. I should have Uh, Marcus Chong was not back. He played tank from the first film.
2: Yeah. You know, did
0: not die. Uh, That's true. He was, he was injured. He was killed off screen. um, And uh, that was a whole thing during this time. Uh, uh, He was not asked back because he uh, said the official story is salary negotiations fell through. Um, Hmm. They offered him like 250,000 to do both sequels, which was five times the amount he got on the original uh, he was demanding $1 million for both sequels. It's mm. uh, a big jump. He sued them for uh, not honoring what he said was a verbal promise and a written contract that he had for the sequels. Uh, he also later claimed that the Wachowskis tried to slander him and uh, make intentionally false statements, causing him to be blackballed from Hollywood the studio came back with, they said that he had been arrested on set for making threats to the directors following failed salary negotiations. Um, And in 2018, there's actually a documentary on YouTube called the Marcus Chong story, uh, which he makes a lot of accusations against the studio that they denied him royalties. Uh, They forced him to sign a fake contract there at the beginning that he thought he was getting his million dollars and have uh made efforts to silence him since mm. That's just an interesting side note yeah, about I mean, marcus chong
3: yeah i mean it's hard to say like i, I don't know meanwhile they just any, killed him
0: off screen Take yeah me i
3: mean show. i don't know much about him about marcus chong uh i i don't know that i've seen him in anything else i know that he's, well, he's uh, lightballed well i know he's tommy chong's son or adoptive son i think huh. but that's the that's like the, that's the only thing i know about him i <laughs> i haven't seen him in anything other than this i don't think uh that i can recall but yeah i don't i don't know that's that's a weird story and obviously there's two sides to everything but it sounds a little bit like he was asking for more money than they thought he was worth and he got butt hurt that they wouldn't offer it to him yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what it sounds like to me <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah.
0: He's, he's he's done like i mean he's he's done like tv since then he's in like Burn notice and law and order and shit like that
2: since then.
3: notice has been off the air for 10 years
0: <laughs>
2: does it, does it, i said isn't since then <laughs> well, i don't yeah. know Not that was recently, 99 was... was when
0: the matrix was <laughs> yeah, bird yeah. notice in like fuck i don't know 20, 20 2009, I don't 2009. Know. <laughs> so uh the majority of these sequels, looking at it world- here he's in the crow wicked prayer
3: Oh, a, a, a boon to anyone's resume. it Ed,
0: Edward Furlong's in that one.
3: I know, I've seen it. It's bad. Ah! <laughs>
1: it's really bad. <laughs> hey, before we move on from the from some of the uh, production that came back for these, I, I kind of just want to give a little shout out to the costume designer because I noticed it this time around where you had the commander in the yellow jersey and you had the captains in the red jerseys and you had the the lower ranking officers in blue jerseys. And I was like, that's a little star tricky, but it, but it looked, <laughs> but it looked good. It looked really nice. And I just, I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Todd. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the majority of these sequels were once again, filmed
3: in Australia at Fox studios. Uh, although the burley brawl and the freeway chase were filmed actually at a decommissioned Navy station. It's a Navy air station in Alameda, California. One of the biggest pieces of production design that had to be created for this film, which we something we never saw in the first film was the city of Zion itself. And this was enormous, an enormous set. Uh, It basically required the creation of this underground cavernous city. And they had thousands of extras, like all the people that you see in Zion are are real people. When Morpheus is giving his speech, there are two or three thousand people in front of Lawrence Fishburne on that set. Uh, one of my
0: favorite things I saw in all the extras was Jeff Darrow talking about like what was amazing is stuff we only hinted at in the last one we could show it all this time, but I had to draw it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he, he enjoyed it, though you know he did. Uh, and Yun Ping was back again for the film's fight choreography, and and the biggest piece of choreography on Reloaded was the infamous burly brawl. I don't know why they called it the Burly Brawl, but the Burly Brawl was the name that was given to the fight between Neo and dozens of Agent Smiths after his meeting with the Oracle in that kind of like courtyard, you know? Mm. Uh, And the physical requirements for this were pretty massive. The choreography was miles beyond anything that had been done in the Matrix. Uh, But there was also the technical aspect of having
0: dozens of Agent Smiths on screen. I've never Uh, seen this this movie, but apparently uh, Barton Fink... The yes. yeah,
3: Cohen Brothers movie, yeah,
0: yeah, is working on a film called The Burly Brawl. Oh, is that the name of his wrestling movie? Yeah, okay. <laughs> interesting. It's, so
3: uh, I still don't know why they named the scene after that because there's
0: nothing. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, maybe it, because, it even goes deeper than that. But I, I did see that factoid out there hmm. somewhere. You should see Martin Fink. It's a great movie. Yeah, uh,
3: I've seen, it's. I've always wanted John, to. John Taturo, John Goodman. Uh, it's it's a wonderful movie. One of my favorite Cohen Brothers movies. This is one, this burly Brawl scene is one of a couple of scenes that the Wachowskis wrote to sort of up the ante on the bullet time scene from the first film. They knew they had to do something bigger, you know? Uh, but even for something like, like that shot, that shot of the, you know, the, the bullet time, the famous bullet time shot, you know, it took months of planning and it was really only a single scene with like two or three actors. Uh, the Burley Brawl, as written, seemed... Like It was just going to be impossible to pull off. They had no idea how they were going to do this. So eventually, John Gata, the the special effects supervisor, realized that the tech that he had developed for the Matrix's bullet time sequence was not going to be enough. And he realized that they were going to need a virtual camera. So basically, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty on all of the technical aspects of this because it's very uh, mind-numbing. But essentially, (laughs) using a lot of data, that was gathered from 3D models that were used on the first film, uh, digitizing elements like character motions and clothing and capturing digital facial samples from the actors. They were able to create virtual cinematography in which the characters and locations can all be created digitally and viewed through virtual cameras. So this isn't just computer animation. They're able to construct a 3D environment. So you've got a, a a virtual camera in the middle of this environment that you can turn that camera around and it's going to be looking at something, wow. uh, something else within that environment. Whereas regular 3d uh, computer animation, you're just constructing what you know, you're going to see on screen, but this gave them the opportunity to really choreograph this scene in a way uh, that that was really interesting. And then this was all seamlessly blended with live action elements built on set, which included Uh, A whole bunch of Hugo Weaving lookalikes, a bunch of stunt guys who had similar hairlines and things like that as Hugo (laughs) Weaving uh, and whose faces were replaced by digital Hugo Weaving masks in post-production. And this scene, you know, this burly brawl scene, it gets a lot of flack now for its use of CGI. Uh, But in 2003, it was seen as groundbreaking. And the choreography for the fight in in the, the live action stuff was an enormous undertaking and and the special uh, features on the behind the scenes stuff on this Keanu Reeves says that this one fight has more choreographed moves than the entirety of the
0: first film. It's when he picks up, it's when he picks up the pole. That's when it all goes downhill. When he picks up the pole, it becomes like, Oh, now it's a not quite so hot video game.
3: Yeah, it looks like a video game cutscene. I agree. And, and in 2003, it didn't, I don't think it looked as bad to audiences' eyes in 2003. A lot of the issues that, because these movies ha, were, they were not hated upon release, but I think a lot of the hate you see against these movies now is in retrospect. In mm. 2003, those effects were not seen as poor, you know, they just, ha- but they have not aged well. I absolutely agree with that. I don't think the Burley Brawls aged well. Uh, I I admire the achievement and what went into creating the sequence, but it is pretty obvious when you're watching CGI as opposed to actors and it can kind of take you out of it. Still a very well choreographed fight and really cool um, and, and very incredibly realized as a set piece, but yeah, the the CGI has not aged well. I
0: think the realism for the stuff that's real uh, is, I mean, it's, It's, uh, I think it holds up against most martial arts stuff today. Like it's, it's just, it's a really solidly choreographed fight scene. It's just, yeah, when he starts getting in, it's, it's, it's when they get overzealous with the special effects, honestly. Like it's just like they've got to CG him spinning through the air and it like clearly now doesn't look like Keanu. And you're like, no, "Ah, it looks
2: like a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It looks like a cartoon. I actually want to give,
1: uh, I actually want to give, um, gary some props for Don't. not tw- well i want to give <laughs> i want to give him some props for not twisting the uh picking up the pole line and tying that to justin's mom picking wow. up the pole I, i'm mm. really i'm very proud of gary for not doing that so well gary, you know
0: like listen i mean with humanity is complicated and i think that's the, really the theme of the matrix and generally when they pick up the pole, that's when things fall apart. And that can be applied to this scene or Justin's mom. And it's doesn't just, even I don't sense. feel like it, <laughs> it's just, it just doesn't. You guys, are
3: just, you guys are
0: just reaching. I don't know. <laughs> so You're,
3: the Berlin your draw.
0: education came from your mom picking up the pole. <laughs> like, but- <this> still doesn't you know,
3: make any sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It makes sense <laughs> in a lot of ways. Why are you having so much trouble with this? You can talk about Dick, or you could be talking about she picked up the pole like she started stripping, and she's on the stripper pole. There are so many different routes you can take with picking up the pole. Don't act like this is that much of a stretch.
3: Have you ever seen a pole dance? They don't pick anything up.
0: No, <laughs> but, but they pick for for the up dollars as off an the stage occupation. Like I picked up writing,
3: okay because i'm gonna i love writing. i'm gonna go ahead and say if any of our listeners are uh exotic dancers do you prefer to do, do you refer to it as picking up the pole when you decide to become a dancer please let <laughs> yeah. us know tweet us will, at cinema underscore shock please you let us know if you've ever their, used that will term
0: you now refer to it for your newbies <laughs> ah so you decided to pick up the pole eh? <laughs> <laughs> so dumb <laughs> i'm so glad
3: i was able to
1: just nudge us down this well honey we're gonna
0: name you neo
3: (laughs) so the burly brawl uh it's just one of two big set pieces in this film in the first film in reloaded the other one is the freeway chase and like the Burley Brawl, it was filmed in Alameda, California, where the production built a mile and a half long freeway on the existing runways of the Naval Air Station. Uh, I mean, just this freeway, just the set cost like three and a half million dollars, I think, yeah. you know, like it, it's, it was huge. Nobody had ever done a set this size before. I was going to say and it, a
1: half long set. Did they get any sort of record, like any sort of Guinness record for like biggest set? You know, I don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I have to imagine,
3: I can't think of anything, at least in length, you know, like any, any other set that's been built like this. Uh, And they did it. Gary, don't Don't say it. Don't Uh. say it, Gary. (laughs) And the Uh. reason they did it was because they had scouted some actual freeways, I think in like Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it was going to just be too, too hard to film there because when they finished a, uh, when they finished a take, they would have to get off an off ramp drive through the city like a mile and a half down to another on-ramp onto the freeway and so resetting oh, a shot man. when they had to redo it was just going to be too cumbersome they build their own set and then they can just
0: everybody just back it up <laughs> kind of thing you know yeah so i saw like gm donated like 300 cars for the use of production in here yeah there's a
3: lot of cadillacs used in this like the, mm. the one that trinity and morpheus are in was like a brand new cadillac that wasn't uh, wasn't on the market yet. You know? Yeah, one dude wow. has like Blade 20 different
0: Cadillacs or something. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, But yeah, like GMs, all 300 of their donated cars were destroyed by the end of this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> what's going to happen.
3: <laughs> so... Like most big sequences on the film, the freeway scene was extensively storyboarded by Steve Scrooge, uh, and those storyboards were given to the stunt and effects team who had to kind of figure out how the hell are we going to bring this to life? Because the way it was written and the way it was storyboarded was like, we've never seen anything done like this before. How are we going to do
0: this? I got to say just real quick, I feel like when I was watching some of the special features on this and you see those storyboards, they are, you know, not quite Jeff Darrow level, but they are still like comic accurate, like really great panels. And I got to wonder if at some point Joel Silver was like watching all this and was like, man y'all can't use stick figures at some point here (laughs) you'll have like do you really have to hire every goddamn artist in la to do this hey it was
3: just this one guy (laughs) one guy did all those storyboards you know and he'd been working with the wachowskis since they were working on that clive barker ecto kid comic book you know back in the 90s so the guy who was in charge of all of this from a stunt standpoint was a stunt quarter named R.A. Rondell. And this guy is a fucking badass. R.A. Rondell. Uh, This guy, at the time of filming the Matrix sequels, had already been in the business for nearly three decades. Uh, His father was a stuntman. And R.A. had begun work as a stunt performer back in the early 70s and had performed or coordinated stunts on everything from Top Gun to Die Hard to Roadhouse uh, to Point Break, to Jurassic Park. I mean, he is a he's a legend. Uh, and yes, Todd, he did work as a stunt coordinator on two Star Trek movies, uh, nice. Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four. Woo! One of which is really good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's fair. But <laughs> so, like, he's awesome, man. And, and he was responsible for putting the actors through driving school so that they could do their own stunts whenever possible. Uh, and the the amount of elements in this whole freeway chase is sort of like it's insane to think about because it's got a car chase it's got a motorcycle chase uh, you've got physical stunts you've got guns so they had to have an armor and the armor is i forget his name but they interview him on some of the behind the scenes stuff and he is very into guns <laughs> but you've got so you've got guns being fired cars being flipped you've got explosions and then there's going to be some cg stuff later on like it is a huge undertaking and all the the majority of the cars that you see on screen like if you see cars flipping and stuff that's all practical this is not cg now they they throw some cg stuff in when you see trinity on her motorcycle like weaving around cars when there's like a really close call uh mm. those cars are
1: cg well, hell's but, just um, some of the car- camera movement for that stuff. Like they're going like through the axles of 18 had, wheelers. Well, <laughs> they
3: had they actually created some camera rigs uh, so that they could get like the camera really close to the ground behind the motorcycle and things like that. They, they created like three or four, it, it essentially
0: invented three or four brand new camera rigs to get some of these shots. You were talking about that R.A. Rondell guy, I mean. He mentioned a lot of his past stuff, but just it's worth mentioning, too. He's he's like currently still oh, busy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, he's on like Marvel movies and stuff now, like doing the Avengers and like doing. Yeah, he did the Avengers Pir- He did
3: Black Panther.
0: I just wanted to give him credit. I mean, that guy's still like a go to guy for yeah. stunt. Like for- one of the
3: biggest in the industry, honestly, I, I would say yeah. he's like one of the biggest. I don't think he's still performing stunts anymore. I'm not sure how old he is, but he has to be getting up there at this point, but he's still coordinating stuff and uh, you watch him in in some of the behind the scenes stuff and he is the the dude knows every aspect of of that department. It's it's nice. crazy. And you've still got uh, you know Chad Stahlhelski is still is still there. He's not the stunt coordinator, but he's he does a lot of the fight uh preparation and he's still essentially he's essentially Rondell's like right-hand man like anything that's that's hand-to-hand mm-hmm. chad stahelski is still the go-to guy and he's still keanu reeves the stunt double as well so some of those scenes, like where you see keanu do like a really badass like superhero landing you know like yeah. that's chad stahelski doing those those nice. shots um but while we're we're talking about uh the, the stunts i gotta point out debbie evans uh, Debbie Evans is the motorcycle stunt driver who doubled for Trinity at this, you know? now, now Carrie Ann Moss did ride a motorcycle in some of the shots. So you can see her on there, but some of, for some of the more uh, dangerous shots, it's Debbie Evans. Uh, she's driving 50, 60 miles an hour against traffic on a real motorcycle. Like there's, this is not like CG. It's not a blue screen. Like that's her flying down this freeway. Oof. And Evans is known for her as like a motorcycle performer. She began by writing in competitions, uh, but she got her first job doing a stunt on a movie uh, with the Roger Corman movie Death Sport to come out in nice. the nineteen 19- in the seventies, uh, directed by Alan Arkish, the guy who did um, Rock and Roll High School and a lot of other Roger Corman stuff. Uh, nice. But in that, she was asked to jump a thirty foot ravine. That's her first movie stunt, jumping a thirty foot <laughs> ravine. Uh, she'd also she's she would uh, later appear in most of the Fast and Furious movies. First, as Michelle Rodriguez's stunt double, but also she would later perform most of the female drive, driving stunts in those movies. Um, and yes, Todd, she also did a Star Trek. She did uh, stunts in one episode of Voyager. Yeah. So, so there is there there <laughs> are some Star Trek connections among the crew in this as well.
1: Very cool. Very cool.
0: She was like competing up until like age forty. Like she yeah. she I mean she was uh, one of her big things was she was known for like doing a headstand on. The seat of the motorcycle. What? Like the, like she was like to a headstand on the seat, like while the motorcycle not not just like kickstand down, like kickstand up. Like she's doing a headstand on the uh, you know motorcycle just while it's moving. Yeah, <laughs> she's uh she's good. But she did like yeah, I feel like I, I read something like two hundred movies and television shows yeah. or something. She's another another badass
3: behind the scenes on this these movies. Uh, cool. and, and then you've got the fight between. And this is kind of the, the finale of this huge set piece is the fight between Morpheus and the agent on top of the 18-wheeler, which obviously they did not shoot that on a real freeway. Uh, so it was done. It was done indoors on a fabrication of the truck's trailer that was kind of on hydraulics. So it would move like the truck would and then surrounded by a blue screen. And all in all, this whole freeway chase sequence took 48 days to complete. That's longer than production yeah. on entire movies. And that's just for the single sequence. I mean, it is a massive set piece, though.
1: Yeah. And a dope fight scene, too. Dude, It's I, I really cool. This,
3: I think that this set piece from beginning to end, kind of, I mean, this movie, it's got a lot of, of great action choreography in it. But this set piece, I think, is genuinely one of the best action set pieces of the last 25 years. Wow. Um, so, I mean, from the fight in the Chateau through the end of the freeway chase. And granted, I, I say this as someone who I'm a big fan of car stunts in general. Mm. Uh, so that that's always going to bump up a stunt a, a little bit higher for me. I just love if, if you're using real cars oh, uh, yeah. in a stunt, I just love that stuff. But from, from the Chateau fight, which is something we haven't even talked about, but that chateau fight is badass too. Yeah, uh, all the way through the end of the freeway chase, it is like constant action and vehicular destruction on a scale that had
0: not ever been seen before. Uh, before this
3: movie, I, I mean, old-
0: to give it credit, when we got to this point and Morpheus fighting the eight, uh, agent on top of the truck, I, I don't know we'll get to this more, but I was literally sitting a, at the edge of my seat and saying, "Like, God dang, this is the best." fucking movie like this is this is better than the matrix this is is the best one
3: reload that's your adrenaline talking a little bit yeah
0: yeah well i've said we'll we'll get to it we'll talk more but at least at at the freeway fight i was like it's it's amazing this is the best fucking movie i've ever seen in my life because you've got
3: like all this cool practical stuff with the cars and and you know, you've got the agent's ability to jump from person to person so they could be in any car. So there's that constant threat. And then you've got the ghosts, the uh, the twins who are able yes. to phase in and out of cars. And it's just, there's a, there's so much going on. And there's, there's, you know, they're, they're out there. The twins are out there with their uh, each with like two guns in their hands, like two machine guns. And yeah, the, the only thing that doesn't really hold up well for me in the scene is uh, the green screen stuff with Morpheus or the blue screen stuff with Morpheus. I, I was going to say uh, there's,
0: there, there's stuff like where it gets close up on Morpheus where you can really it tell looks, it's like a fake background. You
3: can definitely tell it's a fake background. It I mean, it looks pretty bad, honestly. And, it, and this might be me watching it in high def, you know, on Blu-ray now and seeing stuff I hadn't seen before, but it feels, mm. I mean, it feels an awful lot like a sci-fi channel movie. I certainly know uh, those shots myself. Yeah. So um, it's not but just it's, you. It's bad, but it's not enough to ruin how great the rest of the sequence is, including the choreography of that fight. I mean, yeah. there are some great, and I mean to see Morpheus with a um a damn samurai sword, like slicing up the side of the the truck, and then that that one shot where he does the crane kind oh, of yeah, yes. motion jump onto it. It's
0: it's a it's a, a badass composition. When did, when I, you try to think about it technically, and you're thinking about like, oh well, the close up scenes are the ones that look the the most fake it's like those would be the ones that look the most real because you yeah. can just like chain morpheus down on the top of the trailer <laughs> right. you can get the fucking real shot right and it's like it's which like, doesn't
1: sound like they <laughs> like that was not an option like you know we could just <laughs> yeah. we could just
2: <laughs> i'm just saying
1: it's like those are the ones and then it's like morpheus is
0: doing the fucking like crane fly through the air like on the trailer and like <laughs> that looks legit still yeah, yeah. right.
2: That, <laughs> that looks better. But it's real
0: weird where was- you guys fucked up at.
3: Yeah, we, me, so me and Todd and Gary talked about this a lot during uh like before we started recording, but the amount of behind the scenes material on this film is stacked. It's 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 overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. Um on on the Matrix Blu-rays and stuff, I mean the freeway chase itself has an hour and a half worth of footage, of behind the scenes footage that I watched God. this week just on this <laughs> sequence. But when, while I was like working on my notes, I would have the movie playing in the background as well. Uh, and one thing I noticed when I looked up at one point was during this, the beginning of this whole sequence when they're, they're in the chateau, uh, Trinity and Morpheus are running through it before the fight. Uh, and Morpheus just kind of He's, I'd never noticed this before or never registered, I guess, but they're like running and he kind of stops himself and looks over and sees that there's a samurai sword in, in one of this, uh, uh, these many displays of uh, of weapons that, that the Merovingian has. But I've never noticed that before. And the way that he kind of stops and like sees the samurai sword, he's like, fuck yeah. And then he <laughs> uses that samurai sword for the whole rest of this sequence. And it's it's a really great little moment. That oh, you don't yeah. One of those things you don't really notice on first viewing, uh, but... But it's a great little character moment. I think like he saw that. He's like, I know, I know how to use
0: one of those. Yep. <laughs> Having just seen uh, Halloween, one of my favorite, uh, you know, this month in Halloween. You just saw it. Halloween for the first time? <laughs> I just seen it for the first time. Just I did just see the the 1979 movie. Anyway, <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make is one of my favorite scenes, the further along in age I get, for some reason, is when Loomis is waiting outside and Lonnie tries to sneak up to the house. And, uh, and he's like Lonnie get your ass away from there yeah <laughs> like Lonnie runs away and yeah. Lewis has just that look of satisfaction Morpheus keeps having those moments in uh in this movie and it just yeah. I get the same giggly feeling like when he's you know they they first meet with the Merovingians or whatever and walk out and uh they're like are you sure he, she the oracle didn't say anything else No, this is all she said. Maybe we messed something up. And he's like, no, everything happened as it would have. How do you know? Because we're alive. And then Monica Bellucci shows up and says, like, if you want to, you know, find the key maker, come with me. And Morpheus gets that, like, grin on his face, like, as he starts (laughs) to walk away. And it's like, it's a knowing grin. It's either because of Monica Bellucci herself or it's because of everything he's saying is coming to pass. anyway (laughs) that was a long roundabout way to say I just I just love Lawrence Fishburne in these movies I think he's he's like definitely one of my favorite parts I think he's a fantastic actor and uh just he's so subtle with some of his reactions to things but they're they make it so beautiful sometimes you mentioned the Merovingian we haven't talked about him a lot Lambert Wilson plays the character but are you
3: do you know what that term means the Merovingian no no so it's this um It's this dynasty of French royalty who believed themselves to be direct descendants of Jesus Christ. Interesting. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) It's very, it's a a very, I I went down a rabbit hole looking at the history of it. It's very uh, interesting, but yeah, it was this, it was this series of Kings generations of Kings who felt like they were direct descendants
1: of Jesus. That's, that's kind of wild, but also, kind of goes with like the themes and stuff that they've set up thus far oh yeah i yeah. mean jesus you could just every, I mean, every no name...
3: pun intended jesus you could just uh you could... every name in this you could you could find meaning behind it every, Oh there, sure
0: there are so there there is an god-awful unending amount of easter eggs throughout this film shit names numbers yeah. everything relate to like bible verses or hindu gods or fucking whatever you want these guys i mean you know, full props to them, but there you could spend like, literally, I, I don't know. I, I tried to Google like a matrix podcast today just to see like, Oh, I'll just listen to somebody talk about it while I'm running errands. And, uh, there's, I don't feel like there's, I, mean, maybe I missed them, but I don't feel like there's just anybody that spent like three years on these movies, which uh, I feel like you could at least do on yeah. picking up Easter eggs and like little points that these guys mentioned in, these movies just oh, little yeah. little things like the names of characters or the names of even the ships and things like
3: that like niobe niobe is a, a greek god or goddess i think uh, persephone uh, monica bellucci's character was the daughter of zeus the queen of the underworld you know like like that's a every single name has some sort of meaning in this so the shoot for the matrix sequels overall took a staggering 270 days. Uh, this is just a production. This is not including pre-production and post-production. This is just the shoot. Because remember, as we said, the two Matrix sequels were filmed as a single production. Two massive blockbuster films basically slammed up against each other with a budget of $300 million. Remember, the first Matrix was $60 million this is 300 million dollars so even one of these sequels is triple the budget almost of the original film uh and as i mentioned earlier uh, gloria foster unfortunately passed away during production and structurally that presented a pretty major issue in the film because you can't really do the film without her uh, because she plays a major role especially in the sequels but also how do you recast it without addressing it so they ended up kind of rewriting the dialogue in her first appearance to explain the change because yeah, they explain it in the video game, but you can't expect that everyone who's going to see this movie has also played the video game. Mm. So while reloaded had the major set pieces of the freeway chase and the burly brawl uh, revolutions had it's, share a big action set pieces too, including the machine's attack on Zion, uh, which was referred to as the siege. Uh, and the siege is another enormous sequence, which once again began as a series of concept drawings by Jeff Darrow. I, I urge you to look up those concept drawings because the amount of detail is every single little bolt and screw is in those drawings. Uh, it's insane. Uh, it's crazy. And this this type, the type of spectacle that you see in this, siege scene it might seem kind of old hat now but in 2003 this was action on a scale that was rarely seen outside of maybe the lord of the rings movies which were releasing around the same time i mean the third lord of the rings movies came uh, came out a month after this movie i believe a month after revolutions so for the for the siege every single tool that a filmmaker has at their disposal for for a big effect sequence like this was used Include included live action elements because the, the, the Wachowskis always wanted a live action element. Even if there were green screens behind them, they wanted a set for the actors to be on. So they used that. They would use CGI. They used miniatures, like enormous miniatures that sometimes referred to as bigatures, uh, like <laughs> these giant miniatures. They're, they're huge, but they're smaller scale than the real thing would be. Uh, even from just a visual effects standpoint, the workload was enormous. There were companies on three different continents with thousands of employees working on this single sequence. This is 17 minutes of film overall, The Siege, that cost more than a lot of movies entire budgets. And the final result was a culmination of more than two years worth of work from the time it was conceived to the time it hit the screens. More than two years had passed uh, for 17 minutes of film. Jeez.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, it was reported somewhere around here that like Keanu ended up because producers started to panic thinking that like this budget, they would never recoup the costs of all of this and the special effects and that sort of thing. He ended up volunteering to give up his claim of the tick of the ticket sales. That uh, huh. was part of his contract, which uh, looking back would have amounted to uh, according to what I saw, like $38 million. Woo. Good, guy gave that up to- good guy. Always a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> just to just to go ahead and like push forward. Yeah, to, to kind of ease
3: their mind a little bit, maybe. Yeah. So the other major set piece in Revolutions is Neo's final battle with Agent Smith. So this is a scene that starts on the streets, filmed on a massive set with a torrential downpour of rain falling on Keona Reeves and Hugo Weaving. These are big, fat chunks of rain, too. They wanted it to mimic the look of the Matrix coat falling down, so they had these big, fat chunks of rain. They called it chubby rain. <laughs> <laughs> Once the fight moves into the sky, the actors were filmed on a blue screen stage hooked to these rigs that Ch- Chad Stolhelski actually helped to uh, to come up with to mm-hmm. invent that would allow them to fly around the set and move in a way that wires did not normally allow you to move. Like, like it's, it's kind of this ring that goes around their waist so they can move not just up and down, but left and right and flip and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's really wild to look at. It looks like it would definitely make me throw up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the Wachowskis, they they wanted it to look this way because they wanted to create a sense of flight on film. Like we'd never seen before, where you actually felt the weight of the characters as they kind of thrashed around. Mm. So to get an idea of what the fight would look like in the air, they had stuntmen uh, from Yun Woping's Ping's uh, his his group of, of guys, his group of performers. They went up on a zero gravity airplane, like the ones that they use to train astronauts. Uh, like oh, what wow. zero gravity feels like, it's what they used in uh, like Apollo thirteen for the weightless scenes. It's basically a, an airplane that goes up at a super steep uh, degree and then nose dives, and in that in between from going up to going down there's a there there are moments where you're completely weightless wow so they went up and choreographed fights choreographed this fight on that airplane because they wanted to see what it would look and feel like and how those moves would work in a completely weightless environment uh, which it's <laughs> crazy to think about
1: and, I, and i'm thinking of the cost of that
2: of like you know, i know i'm sitting here right didn't now just do it about for free how <laughs> many people are about
1: are bitching about
0: jeff bezos taking william shatner to space and i'm like these motherfuckers hey at are- least they got
3: some. we got something out of this one that, that,
0: that was just publicity
3: <laughs> so for some of the more complex shots a combination of motion capture and cgi was used and this fight i think is really the first time that audiences saw a true like flight bound superhero fight. Like every comic book fan who'd ever dreamed of seeing a superhero fight on screen. I feel like with this sequence finally got what they wanted. Oh yeah. And whereas the the CGI in the burly brawl that we talked about a few minutes ago uh, was a bit of a distraction. It kind of takes you out of it because it's so obvious. I think it's generally aged pretty well. In this sequence, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it takes place, A, in the dark, and B, in the rain. So you've got elements that are covering up any of the flaws in the CGI. Those are always the
0: secrets you can point to. Yeah. You know, like the Godzilla movies, even like the second uh, of the newer Godzilla movies. It's like, uh, it's really dark and rainy. There's
3: too much dark and rainy in that for for the technology (laughs) that
0: that they had at their hands in that one.
3: Uh, But then in this fight, you've also got that final punch that ends the fight. Which is entirely rendered in CGI, and I think still looks pretty good, honestly.
1: The the slow mo, like yeah, the slow motion punching punching through all the raindrops, and then Mm -hmm. connecting with uh, the. I mean, it's it's still clear that it's CGI, but it's
3: pretty good CGI for a movie that's almost two decades old at this point. Yeah. One of my favorite bits of behind the scenes trivia on the film involved the creation of the big Wizard of Oz head that the machines speak to, uh, to use to speak to Neo at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, which is a very clear, I think, a very clear Wizard of Oz reference, like going into the Machine City, which is sort of their Emerald City. But anyway, you've got this big baby head. Uh, First of all, it's kind of weird that they even felt the need to make a face because Neo is blind at this point. So what does it matter what it looks like? Yeah. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) it was for the audience, I guess. But to create (laughs) this, the filmmakers filmed facial expressions from a baby. An actual baby, uh, and use them as a reference on the animation. They they were they had a really hard time getting him to cry, which is what they want. Which tell you it's not that hard to make a baby cry, guys. Come on, just <laughs> punch in the face, <laughs> just smack it. <laughs> then they had Kevin Michael Richardson from uh, uh, Seinfeld. We... <laughs> what if they had Kramer
2: do that? <laughs> Gary. <laughs>
3: Oh man, that would have been a different movie. <laughs> we don't need you. We don't need anyone. Yeah, Kevin Michael Richardson. We, we mentioned him. He was in Final Flight of the Osiris, but he also was back in bound. But he did facial motion capture for the final performance. So they they mapped his face and then used that to kind of animate this uh, this 3D model of kind of a baby face that they they had created for this. So and and then Richardson also provided the voice for what it's credited as Deus Ex Machina, but is essentially the 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 leader of the machines or the or whatever you want to call it at the end yeah so the matrix reloaded was released on May 15th 2003 and the matrix revolutions released only six months later, November fifth, two thousand three. So when it was released, Reloaded grossed over seven hundred and thirty-nine million dollars worldwide. We the highest pro- we
0: make to do this show. Damn. <laughs> I, I love when you make that joke, Gary. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's been, every, it's been every, a few. It's been a few weeks. It's, a, it's every five or six episodes,
3: Gary. I'll make that joke, <laughs> and, and then I'll remind him that we make zero dollars off of the show. <laughs> oh. If we make negative dollars off of this show. It cost us, us money to bring this to you. <laughs> but that that $739 million made it the highest grossing R rated movie of all time. Uh, it broke the record that was previously set by Terminator 2. It has since been broken. Do you guys know by what? Deadpool. No, I, no
1: Deadpool. it's
3: not. Deadpool. Deadpool broke the record. Really? Because
1: yeah. I, I thought Deadpool was like, there's no way.
3: Yeah, Deadpool made like a billion dollars. That movie made so much money. Jeez. Uh, That's uh, awesome. But the Matrix Revolutions, however, only grossed about half of what Reloaded did, bringing in $427 million worldwide. Still a lot of money, still a financial success, but kind of disappointing after the grosses from Reloaded. Uh, So, why? I, I always wonder, like, why is there such a drop off on this? Because while the sequels are generally considered disappointments to a lot of people these days at the time of its release reloaded received mostly positive reviews from critics and audience audiences that got polled by cinema score which is like this i don't know if you guys know about cinema score but they essentially poll audiences after seeing a movie in the in the beginning of its release and it got a b plus i mean the, the original matrix got an a but a b plus is still pretty good you know so audiences were generally enjoying it um, but Revolutions it didn't fare quite as w- well. It, it received mixed to poor reviews mostly, but still received a cinema score of B, which would indicate that most audiences generally enjoyed the film. Um, but some of the complaints were that Revolutions felt anticlimactic or that the sequels were too alienating or too philosophically ambiguous compared to the first movie or just too damn confusing to some people. Mm uh so i have to wonder i i know this is a a rabbit hole that we we go down this every episode but this one i feel like is going to be rough but uh, i have to wonder what current uh more recent reviewers on the internet have to say about these films
0: well yeah i mean you gotta think that including us like some people see these movies and they awaken from the matrix and they (laughs) realize what reality really is they they understand the wachowskis and, and all of what they're trying to say here and then some people just get grumpy because they were woken up and they just constantly complain that they need a nap
3: it's been a long road to get to that one
1: yeah <laughs> it's the journey I'm, it's honestly it's, the journey. it's all about I, the I the like you
0: just like killed on my thunder there i felt like i was doing pretty good on that one but, all <laughs> yeah, right yeah that's good um uh let's see i can't even pronounce this person's name would up over scrubbing me that feels like is that, spells. Is, that right. is that, that is that funny. western european <laughs> yeah i think so okay uh, this is for let's go start off and reloaded uh all of the problems of the first movie amplified plus a confusing plot awkward sex scene and cgi upskirt it's difficult to believe this was made in earnest. Who's earnest? <laughs> Thomas Joseph Johansson says, "Good action, but it tries to be so serious." And honestly, I only like the animatrix in the original. So take that with a grain of salt. Fuck this movie. <laughs> Great.
3: I'm still says, trying to remember the. Uh, I'm still trying to remember from that first review when there was a CGI upskirt. I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, it's the girl it's, with the with the cake. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. With the girl with the what? With the cake. In the Merovingian's restaurant.
0: Oh shit, you're right. Yeah, I forgot mm-hmm. about that. Grape says, watch this right after the first one and turned it off maybe 40 minutes in. Both of them in succession. in succession was like edging and then immediately getting puked and shit on at the same time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> listen some people pay a lot of money for that sort of hey thing. you know no we're no, no kink
3: shaming here on cinema <laughs> shock
0: <laughs> the 40 minute mark i don't think i got much more of these i don't think i recorded them all but i have legitimately read so many reviews that said watch this for 40 minutes and then gave their bullshit afterwards. are these a um i have to ask
3: are these a, a combination of reviews of both of these films
0: Uh, This is Reloaded right now. Okay. I'll let you know when I get to uh, the other. Uh, (laughs) You forgot the name of it. Yeah. Revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just Thomas gave us our longest review of the Reloaded movie. He says, I'd like to think I have a pretty sound film judgment. So trust me when I say that this movie is complete and utter trash. There is almost nothing to like." The opening act of the film is so horrible. The team arrive in Zion where they have a weird, really long orgy rave with like machines. After that, Neo and some other characters talk about philosophy, which I'm sure the screenwriters thought was really clever, but comes off as a 13-year-old reading a single Shakespeare piece and going, yeah, I got this covered. I'm the greatest writer of all time. It comes off as amateurish and up its own ass. Don't worry, things only go downhill from here because the second act is decidedly worse. Neo and his merry band of idiots go into the Matrix to do something I can't remember. Anyway, they recast Oracle Lady and Neo has a weird kung fu fight with some dude and he goes outside where it's revealed that Agent Smith came back off screen. How did he come back? Who knows? Some part of Smith imprinted onto Neo. Anyway, cool fight. That dissolves into a CG goop woohoo. Anyway, they go to dinner with some French dude who spends about 10 minutes talking about something that Wachowski sisters probably thought was really smart but once again comes off as nothing. Anyway, some horny AI kisses Neo and then they steal the key guy and the bland characters take off of him while Neo fights the other people. But I don't worry because Neo has superpowers now and every single action scene in this film is lifeless because Neo is Jesus. There's no tension, but the highway chase is cool until Super Reeves flies in and saves them. The last bit of this movie is bad as well. Who would have guessed? The boring characters in the real world do something. I don't know. Anyway, Morpheus and Neo, the key man, go to do their thing, but they're attacked by Smith, who serves no role in the narrative except to occasionally show up in cool fight. Anyway, key man dies. Neo goes on to talk to the architect. He uses really big, complex words, which is awesome and smart and cool. Way to go, guys. Thank you. Anyway, Neo goes to stop some robots in the real world. How, you might ask? I don't know. No one does. There's no reason. Anyway, his powers of the real world make him sleepy, so he has a nap, curls up next to Hugo Weaving, who is uh, possessing a much less talented actor. This is a fucking disaster. Genuinely one of the worst things I've ever seen, and I watched Justice League.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's uh, that's Ooh. a little rough. I don't, I don't agree with a lot of those notes, but that's... <laughs> Also, the guy who plays Hugo Weaving, the uh, or Bane, I think is the character's name, the guy who gets taken over by, by Agent Smith. I think he does a pretty good Hugo Weaving impersonation. I think he does good. an excellent, Hugo <laughs> I Weaving.
1: think it's really good. <laughs> all right, so now we'll jump. It's, real all, quick. it's all in the cadence, it's all in the yeah. cadence of
2: the movie. Yeah, which yeah.
3: we didn't mention it on the first uh, episode, but uh. Hugo Weaving kind of based that off like an American newscaster, like a Walter Cronkite kind of thing is what he was going for.
0: Anyway, uh, these these jump into the revolutions ones. uh, Jenny says, what a shaggy dog story. Thandon says, bro, I literally don't care. I am genuinely (laughs) excited for the fourth Matrix movie. The Matrix is one of the formative films of my childhood, but... God, this film is a complete misfire for me personally. Just wasn't interested by a single element of the story or the filmmaking, aside from maybe the absurd Neo-Smith fight towards the end. I really wish I could enjoy these movies for what they are, but what they are is frustrating. I was shocked at how little I enjoyed and how actively I disliked almost everything these two sequels were doing on a rewatch, and I don't think I'll ever rewatch them again. Wow. Jeez. I, I threw to, um, you know, just just to throw it in there, I, I'm on Letterboxd, if you guys don't follow along. I mean, this is Gary Horn. We all have Letterboxd accounts, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of my favorite people that I follow that are lesser known that I want to give credit to are uh, one, one of the guys is Garrett Smith, and another is a young I'm, girl. Yeah, I follow him too. Yeah, and another is a young girl. named uh, Her name's Kid Coppola, Uh and they both had reviews of this, so I just want to give them real quick credit. Garrett Smith for reloaded, gave this movie three stars. And he said, yeah, but does your high concept world building anime influence cyberpunk fantasy sequel have a cave rave? <laughs> <laughs> and then for the third, he says, as is tradition, the final part in the trilogy is an overstuffed ludicrous display of goofy indulgence that ultimately comes to be appreciated as the entertaining curio of the bunch. There's a lot that shouldn't work here thanks to dedicating much of the drama to characters we're not invested in, and yet largely does thanks to well-executed visuals. Finales bursting with incredible imagery that I couldn't help but cheese through. I love these unwieldy, often stupid movies. This one in particular is kind of Gods of Egypt-level bonkers. Bananas, not so, and that's special to me. Each of these movies ends with an affirmation that love conquers all, and I wish they'd each ended with a Huey Lewis power of love needle drop kid coppola said of reloaded and this is the final one the only part of this movie that i liked was the ending otherwise it was boring and not particularly memorable at least to me because i don't remember anything that happened <laughs> so, <Fair> enough. <laughs> uh anyway she gave it two stars garrett smith gave it three stars Guys, I'm going to I'm going to I'm gonna just jump out here and tell you my opinion, my personal uh opinion. I know I've dragged on with some of these reviews, but I want to throw them out there because I got to say, I said this up front. I was watching part 2 and through that freeway chase, I was like this is the fucking most badass movie I've ever seen in my entire life and Justin was 100% right it was my adrenaline talking because <laughs> after that point I was like Will this movie ever fucking end? I don't <laughs> think it will. And it won't stop. And then by the time I got to Revolutions, I, I swear to God, I was like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about any of these people. None of this makes sense. And I, I, I it's nothing personal against the Wachowskis. I appreciate what they're doing. But by the end of rewatching this series, I don't think that I feel any differently than I did at high school. Like, I legitimately feel like the Matrix was special. The thing I've gathered from our review here is the Animatrix, that I gained an appreciation for the Animatrix. And with these sequels, I've been like, fuck, Reloaded has some badass action sequences. And then it's just like, as movies, no no I don't. A, I don't
3: is it is it a story thing or yeah what, i what think i don't connect with
0: anybody in these movies i have no connection to them i don't care what happens to any of the characters i feel like they drag i feel like they're kind of a slog to get through like it's even you know i think what happens is in the matrix like you at least like can connect like you have a, a avatar and neo that you're like okay this is a guy who's stuck in the real world and you can but by now to, he's become a a, a god like he literally is emotionless and he's just a fucking god and it's like everybody acts like that and it's just like they're all just doing these fu- fucking stoic like non-emotional impersonal things like that you're just like I don't know. Like by the time I got here, my favorite character became Morpheus. And even by the end, Morpheus was like dragging on me. And I was just like, all right, fuck Morpheus. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get that. The performances in this are not great.
3: I think you mentioned maybe it was in our, I can't remember. It might've been in our Animatrix episode or might've been in our, our Matrix episode where you mentioned that a lot of times the characters in the Wachowski's films act a little robotic. Right um, and, and I think that's a specific choice that they're making. but even in the real world, like Neo and, and Trinity kind of have a monotone yeah. uh, robotic quality to their performances, I, I remember I, there was one point when I was watching uh, the, the, the third one, I think it was the third one. and Neo says to Trinity, it might have been when she's about when she like is about to die. and he says, I love you too damn much. And the way that he delivered that line, I literally laughed <laughs> when I was watching it. And I love Keanu Reeves. I love Keanu Reeves. Yeah, but that... it's not
0: that. I, I love <laughs> Keanu Reeves too. And I appreciate him as a human being, but it's like these movies, these, God bless them, the Wachowskis, I don't, I felt this inbound and I laid off it. And now I'm here, we're a few movies in and I'm like, they do not recognize human emotion. Like they do not, they cannot (laughs) portray it on screen. I'm sorry. I I don't know that that's necessarily the case.
3: I think it is a specific choice that they're making with this. I don't really get it as much from bound as you do. Uh, I I think these movies are not without their flaws. I think they're, they are flawed films. Uh, Some of the effects genuinely don't hold up. Uh, But I think one of the biggest things is I, I said this on our last episode towards the end, but. I think it's simply impossible to recreate the feeling of discovery that you get the first time that you see The Matrix. Um, And I think that's a big reason why a lot of people who disliked the film when they saw it back in 2003 uh, disliked it. And I think another big reason, and this is based on reviews and things that were coming out at the time, a big reason people didn't like it when it came out originally was it wasn't what they were expecting. Uh, this, This is not your reasons for disliking this. This is just, general consensus when it came out Uh, because instead of giving us the same story over again, all over again on a bigger scale, like a lot of sequels do the Wachowskis decided they were going to challenge the audience. Uh, They completely, upended all expectations that they had created for the first film it's honestly not unlike what ryan johnson did with the last jedi with a very with a similar response from the fan base uh the audience expected one thing maybe they even wrote the sequels in their heads like where they thought the story was going and the Wachowsies, they they gave them something totally unlike what they thought they would get from a matrix sequel i mean th- think about this the the entire plot of the first film was about Neo discovering his true identity as the one. Uh, the big question in that film was, is the, prophecy that, is the prophecy that Morpheus received from the Oracle true? Is Neo the savior who's going to save mankind from the oppression of the machines? And then that movie ended in what seemed like a confirmation that yes, he is the one and humanity is going to be saved. He's going to free everyone. And then these sequels, especially starting with that big expository dump by the the architect at the end of Reloaded, essentially says, no, everything that you believed at the end of the Matrix is bullshit. Uh, Neo, is Neo the one? Well, yeah, kind of. He's kind of the one, but he's an anomaly that we knew about. And the prophecy from the Oracle was just another form of control. Uh, We find out that there's been five other ones before him that helped essentially to usher in the destruction of the human race. That's pretty fucked up. And it made a lot of people really mad because it is not what they wanted from a matrix sequel. They wanted Neo to be
0: Superman. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I got to say, that's not me. Like, I love that part. I love the part that it's like, no, this, this keeps happening. You've got to learn a lesson. Like that's, that's the ultimate thing here. Like nobody is coming to save you. You can, I mean, maybe that's just, this is me reading into it, but it, <laughs> it's, it's curious, like personal philosophy. I was about to say, it's just like, I, I look at life this way in just a lot of ways. It's like, no, no one person can save you. It's like, you've, this'll, this'll keep happening. There'll always be people that are going to save you, but right. like, you've got to change like you've got to do something and um there has to be something different that happens here
3: well and th- that's why i don't believe that despite what o- other flaws you might see in the film i don't buy the arguments of this that these movies are less philosophically interesting than their predecessor oh
0: i don't buy that either no that's not that's not me i just think they drag like i think <laughs> i think so, they, they last a long time <laughs>
1: you no know, it's like I'm, unlike you. Um, <laughs> Wow. Nice. uh, Well done. Well done. Well, listen, look, listening to Will Smith talk about how the movie was pitched to him initially, and then knowing that the matrix movies were conceived as a trilogy. And of course putting those two things together makes me think that maybe they did the Wachowskis probably didn't do a great job pitching this franchise they may have done a great job pitching a movie and then had to because it does feel very one-sided like they got so much great stuff crammed into that first movie that the two sequels feel a little light or you know heavier on the action and less. like there's less of a balance. Well, that's what I
3: think. I I, I kind of agree with that. uh, Not to interrupt you, sorry, Todd, but I I do agree that I think that the the size and scale of the action in this one is a big part of it. I think that because they went so big on the action that a lot of the
1: philosophical stuff, it's there, but it gets a little lost. Well, yeah, because you get, essentially that stick out in my mind, you get two moments in Reloaded and one moment in Revolutions. The two in Reloaded are, Uh him and uh counselor Hammond and him and the architect, Neo and the architect. And then in the third movie, you get the discussion of there's a little bit with the Merovingian as well. A little bit, Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but really the really big one to me is the one discussing love and karma with the man in the in the train station.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um
1: outside of that, great character, by the way. He's a great character, yeah. And we get to explore these things but i yeah it doesn't feel like neo's movie anymore I, the the performance that sticks out to me in both of these movies is hugo weaving i feel yeah. like i feel he like he has to have a lot more his...
3: fun in this one he does, when he yeah. when he takes that that maniacal laugh of his which i think is the only time we see him without his sunglasses on after he takes over the uh the oracle's body mm-hmm. i think it is right mm-hmm. um yeah. when that when he like has is just so giddy with power yeah uh, I love that moment it's
1: it's really great similarly when he's quote-unquote defeated Neo in that pit in the middle of the street he again his glasses are gone and you see him kind of piecing it all together and then as Neo opens his eyes we get some genuine reaction from him that we haven't mm-hmm. seen throughout the entire franchise and again it's another great character moment and some really fantastic acting decisions part of hugo weaving
0: well i would say that like i mean we're we're, you know you mentioned it's not neo's movie anymore and that and that's an aspect that i'm okay with like i accepted i i felt like neo was gone after the first movie like as far as i mean obviously he's he's there but he's there's no more character evolution for neo really after the first movie like neo is just the fucking one and that's the thing it's like you went with hugo weaving and i go with lawrence fishburne like it's uh i i think that lawrence fishburne is the character like uh, character wise he's he's consistent throughout but that's what's special about him to me is like that he's just the guy who's like so steadfast in his belief and his understanding of the world and that sort of thing that like he's just trying to be the good man and do the right thing and like make things happen. And he believes in what he believes in and he's standing by it that I kind of appreciated that about him throughout the series. So for me, Lawrence Fishburne was the guy and he was the greatest role through the whole thing.
1: I got to say to that, my favorite Lawrence Fishburne moment in these movies is him watching the Nebuchadnezzar explode and him just, Oh yeah, I, he, he, you I know, had a dream that, and, and I had a dream, and now that dream is gone from me. And am just like oh <laughs> you can see he's barely getting the words no, out he's, that he, he's so fantastic. hurt he's so also, hurt who in the trade. Like that, it's true, yeah. Well people literally from the Bible. I
0: think that's <laughs> yeah. a line from the Bible, like Daniel or something. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, 90% I, I sure think, that's that's from the Bible. Going back to the
3: philosophy of these films, like I do think that these. Two, the the second and especially the third one uh, have a bigger focus on religious allegory. Maybe uh, mm. like the third film is a is a much more spiritual film uh, uh, over. Uh, Straight philosophy, but even in the Matrix, the first Matrix, I mean, it's pretty clear that Neo's taking on a messianic role. I mean, Gary hinted at this a little bit in our last episode, uh, but we didn't really dig into it that much. But he's very much like a Jesus figure in that uh, he's got a, it's a character that's destined to save the world against all odds. Uh, and if Neo is the Messiah figure, then there's no other ending than him sacrificing himself to save humanity. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it to paraphrase the film it was inevitable. Like that is the how his story ends. And a lot of fans were pissed that that's how his story ended. Right. But there was no other way for his story to end. Uh, the, the Matrix series as a whole, the franchise as a whole is in the end, a series about hope and wonder and choice and belief. And
1: to almost, some- Almost all of those things come with sacrifice.
3: Yes, exactly. So yeah. and, and while a lot of people at the time that this came out, Neo's sacrifice seemed- pedestrian or underwhelming i think in the context of the series it is well earned uh despite what you think about so i mean and and like i said there this is not a perfect series it is not a perfect uh film either of these sequels but i think that i think its ideas are still very strong
0: well if i could jump in there i mean my thing is is that i don't think any of that's untrue i think that the problem is is like i don't know if i'm just being honest with myself um, the, the, the issue is, is that like, how many people are going to come back to like revisit these ideas or like how many people are just going to be like, Oh Jesus, like I'm done. Cause even me, all of them, my- <laughs> all of them, not often the first one all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think, I mean, that's the thing is like, I get what the Wachowskis are doing. So I'm trying to make that very clear. I get what they're doing. And if you spent a lot of time with all these movies, I, I get it. I do. I get what they're going for. I don't think that they're well crafted movies. Like, this. I mean, uh, well, I, I, let, I don't let me think they're. That. I, I think they're. I think they're very well crafted. Okay, I just they're think they're they technically are... well crafted. Storytelling wise, I'm not they're sure that they capture. They're maybe imbalanced. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to explain. I think I, they're a little clumsy. Yeah, Uh, In their storytelling. I I think for modern audiences, they will not capture most people. Well, the thing is, like,
3: I think that if I'm going to talk about stuff that I I think does not work, I think it does get a little too complex in its philosophical musings. I think, whereas the first film, they felt like they were integrated very well, like Morpheus's talk with Neo about what is the Matrix. Uh, It felt like a part of the story. Whereas these movies, like when they're in the Merovingian's restaurant. He just starts talking. uh, He starts waxing philosophic. It stops the movie dead in its tracks. And I think that, that hurts the movie on a, from a pacing standpoint, because they, it feels like they're stopping to give these, uh, these big treaties on philosophy when they should be just moving on the story. And it, it makes the movie seem like it's dragging along. And that clumsiness, I think continues in its treatment of the characters as well, because the first movie was Neo's story. Todd Todd alluded to this earlier. Sort of the first movie is Neo's story. It's the hero's journey, and it is focused almost solely on his experiences. Everything that you, almost everything that you see in that film is from Neo's point of view, or based around his experience. And these sequels, we're introduced to a lot of new characters, yeah. and the movies often lose their way as a result. I think you you get stuck talking about the politics of Zion or. Or you spend big chunks with Morpheus and Trinity, which are characters we love, but this is Neo's, This should be Neo's story still, and the movies will often abandon him for long periods of time. Uh, and, and then I also think that because the movie is trying to have bigger, more epic set pieces, it's trying to outdo what they did in the first film. They end up having these incredible set pieces and incredible action films or a- action scenes and fights with incredible choreography that do not seem connected to the plot. Like when Neo first fights Seraph, I mm. in the end, Seraph says, "I, I, you never know who somebody is until you fight them." Like ah, you guys didn't have to fucking fight. They're, like you, were, that that was put in there to have a cool fight scene, and it seems a little superfluous. Uh, the biggest set pieces in the first film in The Matrix, like. Neo and Trinity's siege on the lobby to rescue Morpheus, Mm -hmm. which ends in this helicopter crashing to a building and the famous bullet time scene. This is all connected to a character that you care about. You want them to rescue Morpheus. Scenes in the sequels, like the gunfight in the lobby of the Merovingian sex club, uh, which is a badass scene, but it feels more like they're there just for the sake of the action, not for the sake of the story. And I think that's the movie's biggest flaw is that it loses sight of a lot of the things like the characters and the story that made the first one so good. And the story is here. It's in the film. It's a good story, but in an attempt to make this bigger, they, I think they let some of that stuff get in the way of telling a good story.
1: Yeah. I I think either, either from like studio pressure of like, hey, we want all this cool stuff to be in the first movie in case it doesn't work. We don't want to invest yeah. in a trilogy because I mean, they said it in the in the behind the scenes of like, well, we've bought something cool. We don't know what it is. <laughs> like, it's hard to get somebody to write you a big fat check if they don't know what they're buying. So yeah, you front load it. You front load this franchise with all your best stuff. And then afterwards everything is just kind of like well we couldn't fit all this in the first movie so here you go
0: it's it's interesting you bring up a good point there that I I I figured this is as good a time as any to throw this in there so I I just will uh Bill Pope uh you know who is director of photography he he's in he's in I think Reloaded as a security guard uh where they're like count sheep on your own time and he's like why well, i get paid to do them here yeah the, the first the first of the movie yeah yeah um he was on a podcast uh if you look it up uh, roger deakins another famous cinematographer uh pretty big like dude. like the best of all time almost, <laughs> yeah. other well, than Dean well there, there other is the son of, son of a bitch, bitch Dean Cundi, Cundi, so calm, <laughs> calm your tits um, but, but roger deakins is out there uh, he has a podcast called Team Deacons, and uh, Bill Pope joined Roger him. Deacons has a podcast. Yeah, a Team Deacons podcast. Oh, I did and, not know. Yeah. And uh, last year, Bill Pope was on his podcast, and uh, they had a discussion. and uh, He described working on the sequels to The Matrix as a very negative experience. And he said, quote, Everything that was good about the first experience was not good about the last two. We were not free anymore. People were looking at you. There was a lot of pressure in my heart. I didn't like them. I felt we should be going in another direction. There was a lot of friction, a lot of personal problems. It showed up on screen, to be honest with you. It was not my most elevated moment, nor was it anyone else's. The Wachowskis had read this damn book by Stanley Kubrick that said, quote, actors don't do natural performances until you wear them out. So let's go to take 90 on everything. I want to dig Stanley Kubrick up and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Bill Popsey. A couple just- of things about that. One,
3: the I, I had never put this together until you said that, but the the performances in this are very similar to some of the performances in Kubrick's movies. Like they're very monotone, very robotic, but that works in a Stanley Kubrick movie because his movies are made in a very different way. His movies are made to have a certain feel to them that does not work in a big budget action movie. Uh, It doesn't. Uh, And also like he he's right about the first movie almost was a fluke, like an accident. Like it was, being they they gave them this money and they they went off to australia and they filmed this movie and warner brothers was three thousand miles away and not up their ass the whole time trying to trying to look at everything they were doing after the matrix made a shit ton of money and was this huge thing they were i guarantee there were suits on that set all the fucking time yeah because it was also a, hu- a much bigger investment 60 million versus 300 million dollars that's a huge jump
2: right yeah. uh,
3: so warner brothers wanted to protect their investment and a lot of times as we've found out over the years that doesn't always result in the best thing
0: yeah it's just tough i mean you can see like a, 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 I guess what you're saying i mean you can see like they're like trying to drag everybody down to nothing like by, by as uh, as pope says like take 90 (laughs) it's like uh these people don't have i don't know i I lost everything in this movie like i I lost like a connection to most everybody trinity and neo like i've got nothing for them by the end of this i care about morpheus like my consistent feeling is like i want morpheus to live like i'm always afraid morpheus is going to be the guy that dies (laughs) uh, for the sake of this whole venture well, spoiler, he dies in the
3: in the video game. Uh which is going to play into why he is not going to be in the Matrix 4. You know, we'll discuss that
2: <laughs> down the line.
3: Yeah. We'll discuss that
0: down the line when we get to that, but uh,
3: there is actually a reason that he
0: that Lawrence Fishburne is not in the in the new sequel. So. Yeah, I I just recently read something about that. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's its like, I, I just want to be clear. I don't, I, I don't dislike the Wachowskis. I, I, I get what they're going for here. And I appreciate them because I, I, I think that they're as open-minded as anybody could be. And them as like, you could easily, you know, if somebody from uh, certain like uh, political positions could like listen to this podcast and listen to us talk about the Wachowskis is, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking off on my own tangent, but like trans or like whatever you think they might think. I actually think the Wachowskis are much more open-minded than most people. Like that they're very uh, adept at like discussing all possibilities and like understanding like all of these different outcomes and like different perceptions of reality and and these things and and their own personal. Uh, perception of reality is not necessarily what they think everybody else would perceive as reality and they totally are okay with that and they're like it's just they're they're unabashedly and unreasonably like open to all ideas and uh and, and yet still i feel like something about these movies they don't they don't have like a grasp on making them so that they would appeal to mass audiences. Like, I, I, I mean, I, that sounds stupid considering it's the matrix movie, but I'm just saying like somehow they work their way to this point, but it's not unreasonable to me that, by the sequels like people start to fall off like i i, I can well, get I, it
3: yeah i i don't think that that's their concern necessarily it's just no i with mean the, probably the matrix they happen to hit some sort of weird sweet spot uh <laughs> that they've not since been able to replicate
0: yeah i mean i'm just saying like i mean it, and, it, and it's all about knowing what you're getting into i suppose Uh, like literally, Justin, we were just in a conversation with another guy about. I mean, again, this is not important for this episode, but we were talking about the newest Halloween, Halloween Kills. And it's like we're saying, like, if you know what you're getting into, then it's okay. But it is a different movie than the one you just watched right before this. The sequel is not the same as the original. And it's like, if you're doing the Matrix, it's like by the time you get through the sequels, if you know what you're expecting i suppose it works like it's just right. like this is this is not about any one aspect of filmmaking it's not about the fight scenes it's not about the stunt it's not about the cg it's not you know it's just like about this spectrum of ideas and then somehow using all of this to incorporate real philosophical discussion it's a uh, then you'll you'll be okay with it i guess (laughs) i don't know it's uh it's weird it's a weird fucking movie is what i'm trying to say it's a weird fucking trilogy and it it doesn't surprise me that it's not like super popular at this point so this is kind of weird
3: on this because i feel like if we do a further viewing segment here are they going to be different movies <laughs> we right, talked about right. with the first matrix? <laughs> uh, but I wanted to go ahead and do it. Even if you, I don't know if you guys even have anything, but I, there's a movie that I wanted to um, mention personally that I meant to bring up during the first matrix episode. And it's actually a documentary called a glitch in the matrix came out this year, earlier this year, back in like February or so. Um, it's called a glitch in the matrix. It is by Rodney Asher the filmmaker who did Room 237, which is a really great documentary about The Shining. Uh, and it is a documentary about simulation theory, simulation hypothesis, mm-hmm. uh, about the idea that we live in a simulation. And he doesn't fall on one side or the other. He he simply, in this movie, allows people to explain their point of view um, as he often does uh, in his movies. But I I would highly recommend it. It's very easy to find as of right now it is streaming on Hulu. So it's really easy to find, but it's a, it's a pretty fascinating documentary. Uh, So if you're interested in these ideas that the matrix brings up uh, the idea that maybe we're living in a, in a, in a simulation, which is an old, old idea way before the matrix Uh, they, they, he actually, he actually interviews, um, uh philip k dick quite or he doesn't interview him he intersperses footage of philip k dick giving a speech a lot during nice Uh, very cool Philip, philip k dick is someone who he wrote about stuff like that but he also seemed to genuinely believe it uh but it's a it's a really good documentary i would i would definitely recommend checking that out if if these kind of philosophical ideas that are brought up in the matrix are of interest to you and you want to further explore them
0: yeah, I've seen like recent stuff where like uh, people have brought up this idea of simulation theory and why it's dangerous and stuff. Like, I literally think uh, like last week I saw something on Reddit where somebody was bringing this discussion up. Like, oh, simulation theory's still out there and it's dangerous. Here's why. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't believe
3: it necessarily.
0: Uh, I don't, I I don't believe it, (laughs) but I don't know why I said
3: necessarily. I don't believe it. I don't, I don't think it's true, but I do think it's a fascinating idea. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So
0: hearing people talk about it is, is really interesting to me. Well, I mean, (sighs) Oh God, that's a whole other podcast, but no, (laughs) uh, personally, like, I I don't think I do either. It's just that, uh, no, I know I don't. Um, But (laughs) it's just, it's just like guys like Elon Musk and everybody else in the world. has. They they like, talk
3: about Elon Musk in this documentary. They, they talk yeah. about
0: everything from Elon Musk back to Plato's The Cave, the yeah. Plato's Republic, you know, oh. and everything in between. So, so people bring this up and it's like the Wachowskis like brought it to the forefront. Um, I, I guess the biggest one I would bring up, I don't think that we've bring, brought up on any of the ones before, but uh, Equilibrium, did we say that? yeah i definitely that. yeah i think so yeah you did (laughs) okay that was one of mine on the last one yeah all right sorry equilibrium (laughs) is the one it's still a
3: good movie though so you should still watch it well (laughs) it's
0: just like it showed you that the wachowskis uh didn't get christian bale and he went on to batman begins and you know it worked out fine no i mean what i don't know what what other leather bound fight movies are there
2: the <laughs> I crow think. i don't know
0: the crow, <laughs> the crow. get the crow fat <laughs> man returns like Catwoman. yeah there you go you know, she looks like she's from the matrix man uh, so but we didn't
3: mention this but in that scene where they're filming in the uh the like the like bdsm club uh of the merovingians i think it's called hell those extras were actually like people that were in those subcultures like that's that's they put a casting call out so these people brought like their own costumes and you you watch the behind the scenes stuff and they're like yeah there's people from like this that are into this and people who are into this you don't normally see them under the same room uh, under the same roof but here they're like where they're all together hanging out and like <laughs> it's it's really it's some really fun behind the scenes footage
0: well i'm gonna say something here that we'll just like keep it brief and i i don't want to like Pry into people's personal lives more than like what's actually documented, and I, I, you know, I can't say for sure. But at this point in the relationship, just because it's it's pertinent to what we're talking about, uh, Lana Wachowski um, at the time was supposedly married to a woman and was having like a whole thing where like staying out at these clubs, these particular clubs you're discussing and, uh, became like really obsessed with, uh, S and M and that sort of thing. There's like a whole, I, you know, I feel like this is maybe another episode, but, but basically like kind of, uh, delving into a whole alternate lifestyle and, uh, you know, so maybe that'll come up in the future episodes. We'll see. But that doesn't surprise me. Like I feel like uh, Lana had kind of created a new reality she, she, of her own. exploring herself. Yeah, she <laughs> she, had, she had she had been doing her own stuff yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, there's there, there's lots of stuff on 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 the interwebs you can find about like just uh, Lana and, and the details and like uh, the uh, dominatrix that. She fell in love with, and uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about so it later.
1: Everyone, everyone, <laughs> go ahead and Google search Dominatrix and uh, <laughs> a Lana Wachowski, and one hundred percent you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh, my ideas for further watching, it, it is kind of awkward to like pick a movie to sort of go along with these two, which are sequels to a very different movie. But the thing that stuck out to me is more uh, broad terms of like destiny and, uh, you know, fighting for something you believe and like the religious themes we mentioned. So I kept thinking about like Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur and that whole uh, mythology and stuff like that. So I, I but I kept coming back to my favorite version of a type of that story was from earlier in our show, Night Riders. I really and it's like but it also it also ties into like this world of the matrix where nothing is as it seems and you know the the very beginning of Knight Riders those first few shots of him in the forest with uh, his lady and the sword and the whole thing you think you're watching this one movie and then oh he's on a motorcycle like it immediately changes your perception but at the same time it's it's King Arthur on motorcycles so I see that as kind of neo's search throughout this whole thing of destiny and you know fighting for something that's bigger than himself and trying to understand his choices and all that stuff i feel like it lends very well to the king arthur to king arthur lore thinking outside the box mr davis trying to i
2: like
0: it <laughs> so
1: it Am would be I the another- only
0: person who found this like Issa strict stuff
2: I, I just it. found it tomorrow. okay i was
0: about to say i just want to not be the only person like i'm not in some weird fucking part of the dark web where like i'm the no, only no. person who saw this right yeah like,
3: it, no uh, lana was married to a woman uh up until like 2002 and at the the premiere of the matrix reloaded uh the woman that she brought with her to that premiere was uh karen winslow who is ilsa Strix, who is her her uh Stage name?
0: I don't know. There's not a stage involved. She's a she's a dominatrix. She was like a That's pretty a, big dominatrix. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like super famous dominatrix. They're married now. Like avians, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. they became been married se- since 2018 or so. Yeah, I say he. I don't mean that with disrespect. I mean at the time, like Larry had become obsessed with her and Lana. Now, I mean, yeah, had become obsessed with her, and uh yeah, I think they're they're married now. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what that matters except a lot of people think that that strikes like heavily influenced the matrix like towards the end
3: oh yeah yeah i'm not sure when their relationship started so it's, it's hard to say So it would be another 18 years before the Wachowskis return to the world of the Matrix. Uh, As we all know, there's a fourth Matrix film coming later this year uh, from director Lana Wachowski, Uh, but we've got a long road to travel before we get to that film. So at at the time of the third Matrix film's release, the Wachowskis said that they had no intention of ever returning to the world of the Matrix. Uh, In fact, immediately following the release of the Matrix Revolutions, the Wachowskis decided to Take a small break from directing completely. Uh, they need this is a massive production and they need to just step away from it for a bit. <laughs> so instead, the next project that they would be involved with was one that they had actually been developing for years since before the production of the first Matrix movie. Uh, that film, which they would write and produce, would be directed by James McTeague, who was the first assistant director on all three Matrix films. Uh, that movie and the subject of our next episode is, of course, the for Vendetta
0: nice Ooh, that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so join us next week or next episode where we'll be talking about that uh if you want to watch fifa vendetta i'm sure you can find it streaming but head to cinemashock.net we'll have links to where you can stream it right now uh, you can also find all of our episodes there on that website you can find links to buy our merch uh, all kinds of stuff on there uh, including where you can find us on social media
1: speaking of which todd where can our listeners follow you Well, I have a Star Trek podcast called the Computer Resume podcast, which is available wherever you find your podcast. We cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. And you can reach out to that show at Computer Resume on all of the socials. And I am at Mr. Todd Davis on all of the socials.
0: I'm at. This is Gary Horn on all the socials, and I have a wrestling podcast at TFPW Show. I'm not letting up on this Isla Strix thing. Like, what what's happening? You know, her former not, husband was Buck Angel. Do you guys know who Buck Angel is? I can't say that I do. Please well, tell me. Google Gary. Buck Angel. It's the first female to male porno star.
3: Wow! Congrats.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and I Gary, I, you know what? I mean, I'm just I'm just throwing this out there. He looks like more of a man than any one of us. <laughs> like he looks like a fucking badass. <laughs> he's just—he's a guys. Come on, why do I have to be this guy? I have to be—I uh, have to be of worldly and uh, also the most inappropriate at the same time. So that's so difficult. <laughs> that's your role in life, Gary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we appreciate you taking that poll, Gary. Yeah, that still doesn't. Makes it's still not time. a term. Still not a term. Uh, uh, it's you a, can find it's a
0: term now. <laughs> take that <laughs> poll.
1: It's take be a up the poll it's a t-shirt
3: now you can find me at justin underscore bishop on twitter and instagram and letterboxd or you can find the show at cinema underscore shock uh we're on twitter and instagram and you can like us on facebook and you can please please rate and review us on uh, especially apple Podcasts. even if you don't listen to your podcast through apple um because i know there's a lot of really great podcasting services out there i know i i use overcast and spotify for a lot these days so you can find us on both of those but rating us on apple is uh it, it goes a long ways more than in, more than on any other service it's true Gets us in front of more people so please do that if you have friends who like uh movies like we talk about like the matrix or any of the wachowski's movies or if your friends are into uh I don't know, Buck Angel or whatever they might be into. Uh, please point them towards this show.
0: <laughs> I'm not trying to promote porn on this show. I'm just saying it's out there. Who cares? I mean, watch porn if you want to watch porn. Who gives a shit? I'm just saying it's all out there. If you want to watch it, you can find There's it. a lot of it out there. Let's <laughs> say Google, just Google image search Buck Angel. I, I just did. You. He looks a lot like my old boss, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was like, he is the first, like, uh, I, I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, it's another podcast. But I That's think he's podcast. the first. He's the first female to male uh, porn star that there wow. ever was. But congratulations, Buck. So you're doing it, Buck. I think we're he done. used to be. He used to be married to is, Isla Strix, who is now married to lotta Wachowski. So thank you,
3: thank you, Gary. Thank you for the. That, that is the uh, tabloid gossip of the week here <laughs> on Cinema Shock. Uh, <laughs> until <laughs> next week.
0: May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. My God to it
1: now more than ever (laughs) be excellent to each other. (laughs) It is true. What many of you have heard. The machines have gathered an army. And as I speak, that army is drawing nearer to our home. Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us, but if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here before you now, truthfully unafraid. Why? Because I believe something you do not? No, I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here, not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years, we've fought these machines. I remember that for 100 years, they've sent their armies to destroy us. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here. Let us send a message to that army. Let us shake this cave. Let us tremble these halls of earth, steel and stone. Let us be heard from red core to black sky. Tonight, let us make them remember. This is Zion and Johnny has the keys. (laughs)
3: that whole speech of Morpheus is just trying to get a thousands of people to fuck
0: (laughs) it. it 100% is. (laughs) and And I gotta be honest with you, Todd. I'm, I'm so appreciative of you and your skills. Um, that was less Lawrence Fishburne and more, microsoft corporate event was, yeah it wasn't was, it wasn't, was, it, wasn't was, it wasn't
3: an impersonation first of all he says yeah. for 100 years yeah that yeah, says it like that. i remember
1: that for 100 years they <laughs> said sent their armies to destroy yeah. us i can See? do it. i can See? do the lawrence fish right, well thing. it's too That's late now you, it's too
0: late now now you did uh microsoft <laughs> corporate event somebody him the speech for johnny has keys <laughs> anyway thanks for listening <laughs>